Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And since last week, fellow saloners Jeff Cavs, Tiffany S., and Adam S. have all made donations to keep us keeping on, and uh, their help is greatly appreciated. Without you and our other donors, well, these podcasts would have ended long ago. But thanks to you and to all of our fellow donors, we should uh, have a long life of podcasts ahead of us. Now, in my small attempt to preserve some of the more interesting talks and conversations between people whose voices, I believe, will still hold the attention of those of us who have some strange attraction to thinking outside of the box... Well, I've decided to play a scratchy old recording of a conversation between two people whose minds I've always admired. One of them, Rupert Sheldrake, uh, well, we've heard from him many times here in the salon, mainly in the recordings of his trialogues with Ralph Abraham and Terence McKenna. The other person, however, uh, hasn't been heard from here in the salon before. But one of his books, The Crack in the Cosmic Egg, remains one of the most significant books that I've ever read. To be honest, uh, well, it's been a long time since I last read it, but virtually every serious thought that I've had about metaphysics since then rests on the foundation that I received from that wonderful book by Joseph Chilton Pierce. It was a real game-changer for me, and at the time I first read it, I was, uh, well, I was still struggling to break free from the mind-control job that the Catholic Church had done on me as a small child. It has been a really important book in my life, and I hope that you'll give it a read yourself, because uh, simply by being here in the salon, you've already discovered that there is a crack in your own cosmic egg of consciousness. But enough from me. Let's now journey back in time to the evening of August 28th, way back in 1993, and join a few friends in the big house at Esalen to hear what these two interesting people have to say about one another's work. Well, I I think maybe there are people here who are not in your course. A lot of people who are not in mine. I never saw them before. Do they, do they know what you're doing, and do they know what I'm doing? That's my curiosity. Or do you know what I'm doing? I know what you're doing. I've read your stuff. I know a bit about what you're doing. All right. I, th- I think the most interesting thing for us to discuss would be the question of the mind, consciousness, and the brain. <laughs> and it should keep us going for an hour. No. What I would be interested in hearing from you is the relationship between the what we think of as the I call them the fields of energy, which are intelligences, like Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence. I'm sure you're familiar with that, probably. And um, what's the relation is between that and your so-called morphogenetic fields? Um, do you see your these the M fields? I think brain-mind bulletin is calling them. Uh, do you not see that? Is the only real. That's the process of creation itself. That's the 
the, the genesis from our whole experience. It covers all aspects, hmm. does it not? There, there, if, if it's true, then it covers every aspect of everything. There's nothing except that which generates from the morphic fields. I would think, you see, that all reality is organized by fields, that basically nature is habitual, and that our minds are field-based. These fields interact with the brain. So um, I would see the fields as the intermediate between consciousness and brain processes, so that we have fields that would influence what happens in the brain, fields of thought, fields of activity, fields of um, habitual response. And I would see uh, morphic fields as basically habitual. The more often they happen, the easier they are to happen again. And at the same time, the creative process would involve the appearance of a new field, a new gestalt, a new way of organizing things. So I would see the fields as acting through the brain. The brain is capable of responding to many kinds of fields. Um, but, and although the fields act through the brain and on the brain, they're more than the brain. They're shared collectively. What happens in one person's mind can influence what happens in another person's mind through morphic resonance. And that's what you refer to as morphic growth. Yes. Morphic resonance is the process by which one similar a similar pattern of activity can affect a subsequent similar pattern of activity somewhere else. Well, we've been getting into the just that in our, our little get-togethers. And uh, the... An issue I, I used to, to try to get into your into your morphic resonance uh, in my recent book was The Idiosavant. Uh, I remember coming across cases of the Idiosavant some oh, 25, 30 years ago, and I said, this is the most significant thing I've ever come across. It's the greatest challenge. And I uh, kept looking for, for examples of it and found that simply no one was doing research into this area. And in, uh, are, are you familiar with the Idiosavant? Yes. Yeah. Well, there was, in fact, a book on it a year or two ago. Yeah, brought together uh, Daniel Treffert, uh, yeah. Treffert's work. And, and here I'd, I'd gather, in all my years, I'd only found about six or eight examples of it. And here Treffert came out with a book with hundreds of examples. I know, wonderful yeah, Wonderful, wonderful work. But um, we find here people with an IQ of 25 who can't dress themselves, feed themselves, or take care of themselves at all, institutionalized from a very early age. And um, they're totally uneducable, and of course they're literate, and so on and so forth. And yet they have one particular field of expertise, which they can't interact with. There's no dynamic involved. Uh, they can't even, so far as I know, the majority of them can't self-stimulate the field. But if they're asked a question from an external source concerning that field of knowledge, they can give answers which are totally impossible for us to account for in any way. Uh, the calendrical savants are a perfectly good example who can give you dates 40,000 years in the future, 40,000 years in the past, uh, totally accurate, uh, and computations which would take a computer enormous amounts of work to, to do, and their answers are almost instantaneous, and so on. Uh, in every case that I know of, when profiles have been done on these people, real research on them, you find that they come out of a very impoverished background, 
in which they received very little stimulus, but the kinds of stimulus they had were those which would stimulate this particular kind of activity. For instance, the, so the twin savants, who are calendrical savants, uh, very impoverished background, very uh, uh, lack of stimulus in their childhood, except that their mother had one of these little perpetual calendars, little brass gadgets, you know, where you, you turn the wheels and they, all the cog wheels turn and you can arrive at various dates. You can get dates for a couple of hundred or more than years in advance or go back and so on. Well, the little children, had, that was their only plaything. That was their only toy. And uh, they had no idea what the symbols meant, or, or could they, in no way could they read the, the gadgetry. And they just played with it, because if you turn this, all these other things would turn at the same time. They fascinated with it. And that alone was enough contact, and enough of a, of a stimulus, since it had no competition with much other stimulus, stimuli, uh, that it activated in them. Uh, access to all calendrical information that we know, that you can think of. For instance, if they're asked to go back before 1752, I think, the time in which we switched from Gregorian to Julian, Julian to Gregorian calendar, whichever way it was, they dropped out a number of days in, in European history there, and there were about 12 days involved. And when they go back before 1752, they adjust to the calendrical system and give an answer in uh, keeping with the calendrical system at that period of time. And of course, if you ask them how they can make such an adjustment, they look at you blank because they can't understand so abstract a question. If you ask them about a calendrical system, they can't understand the word calendrical or system. But uh, ask them for a date and they can give you to with unerring un accuracy. So the only way this can be accounted for would be that all human knowledge or all human experience or, or undertaking of any nature, regardless of what, tends to aggregate as a field effect or create a field effect. So that then from that point on, even from the first people notching a stick to keep track of time or going by the moon, stars, whatever, from that point on, all activity of that nature tends to aggregate as a particular field of activity. And these savants simply are locked into it by some fluke in very early childhood. And you do find that most of the savants have some experience like that in very early childhood, which opens them to the field effect. But they can't enter into it dynamically. That is, they, they can't sit around and think now about various states. They have to be given the stimulus from an outside source. So it's a very limited ability. Whereas we can, we can learn about calendars and, and all that, but, but we have direct access to it. It's got to filter through the adjustment to all the other fields of intelligence operating in our brain system. So we, get, uh, we, we can employ, employ these things and learn about them and dynamically interact with them. But we can't give that pristine purity of answer, just like the mathematical savants. And I think they are the, the clearest example of this we have. They're, They're sometimes called lightning, lightning calculators. calculators yes. yeah. The two that the British employed during World War II as, literally as computers, as calculators, and they were infallible. They never made an error, and they couldn't read and write. If you put two plus two up in front, they could not interpret it and make a response to it, but if you could, they're, they're the ones that 
would give you the answer of 2 to the 6th, 4th power. The numbers, if you double the rice on the checkerboard, you know, you start off with, with 1 and the second one is 2 and so on. How many do you have down here? Well, it's, it's a number in the quadrillions greater than the number of atoms in the sun. And the guy took him 45 seconds just to read out the answer, that is, once he was at, because it's such a huge answer. And But of course, if you ask him, how does he know, he looks at you blank because he can't understand such a question. And this covers all fields. Yes. There, well, I agree. I mean, I think this is, it's obvious they're accessing something <clears throat> beyond their normal mental capacity. And something like morphic resonance could help explain it. I mean, what other theories are there? I don't think anything else can. Mm. And, and, and the business of, uh, of uh, gardeners' multiple intelligences. Mm. Again, you have, you have... All he's talking about is another aspect of this morphic resonance. Mm. So you would agree that that's a good application of it. I think so, yes. Um, I mean, I've been interested in the attitude you said on the thing myself, because it's clear that there's some field of mental activity they're tapping into, which is not. It's coming through them, it's hardly coming out of them in, in, in the normal sense of the word. Um, and it's obviously related to normal mental skills, but as you say, it's happening in a very intensified form, because it's not interfered with by other kinds of mental activity. And ordinary mathematicians, talented mathematicians, uh, often have what's called a mathematical landscape, you know about mathematical things. Um, and I suppose that they must be re related to what goes on in the minds of lightning calculators. Uh, the mathematicians I have known in that fact get just a little bit one-sided, in fact. They can't look at anything except to see it mathematically. Mm. Uh, a topologist, a friend of mine who did his doctorate in topology, and um, he really was operating in a different world. I, I couldn't follow it at all. And yet he was seeing everything, literally, through that. Mm. He saw everything topologically. Mm. So if there's this <clears throat> morphic resonance effect, which may be operating in the idiosyncrasy, how do you see this uh, relating to ordinary education? And do you apply this in the realm? Are you applying these principles? Well, I certainly think they could be applied in this respect. I mean, look at Maria Montessori. I, I love her her term constellates, and she was using this in, in regard to constellations of stars. And she was saying this child is born to the world with these constellations available to them. They're there. They're available. A constellations of intelligence or abilities and so on. And that all they need to be given is an, an environment that both nurtures, protects, and stimulates them, and makes it all right to unfold that which is automatically within them. And uh, the, these consulates are what you would, you would term morphic fields, in effect. And uh, she was having children who were spontaneously reading and writing at four and five, and they said, what are you doing to teach them? She said, the funny thing is, no one is teaching them at all, you see. Uh, instead, they gave them a totally protective environment which, in which this kind of exploration was uh, perfectly all right to do. And they simply followed it because, they're, you know, we live in a literate world, a world of, of words and written words and so on. And uh, she said, then people hear of this, and they said, well, how can we teach 
that if you can, how can we teach these four and five year olds? So we start trying to cram it in from the top down. You see, it's an intellectual kind of pursuit and jam up the whole system and nothing happens. And so her recognition of it is, is, is uh, an innate capacity which just given the protective environment for it will naturally start and unfold is certainly different from most <laughs> ideas about education. We have a Montessori teacher here, and I'm afraid to say too much, because and I'd really like to have your feedback on that, but that's essentially what she means by consulates, isn't it? And the sensitivities, right? yes. And if we're sensitive to that, and we're kind of in tune with it, and, and give it, above all, it's giving them permission to go ahead. Uh, that's the protective, nurturing environment. And of course, she finds that, that the anxiety or the, the stress of having to learn is, of course, what shuts the whole system down. I also have a friend in New Zealand, uh, uh, Stephen Taylor. I've told my group about him, a uh, medical doctor who was a mathematician. And out of the works of, of um, uh, the uh, Hegel, Strangely enough, he claims that no one, maybe one in a generation, ever understands Hegel, and he thinks he did after studying him all of his life. But out of the works of Hegel, he devised what he calls circular mathematics. And I, no need to go into what circular mathematics It's just not integral, it's not uh, linear math. They don't deal with numbers that unfolds one, two, three, etc. They deal with number as a circular, a circular whole. And, um, it, it, anyone who's ever learned mathemati- mathematics from a logical standpoint, as we do, linear, is just driven up a wall by it. It's the craziest thing in the world. And yet, kids who who use the system, who learn from the beginning how to do this, and girls are as apt as, as boys, uh, can handle the four basic maths in incredible ways. They can they can deal with the uh, and it's all in the head. They use no pencil and paper. They're never, they're never even trained to use paper and pencil. But they can give you astonishing mathematical answers, lightning fast, by the, the way they operate. And what they're first of all trained to do is to open up and wait for the first intuitive glimpse of the general ballpark in which the game is being played and, and where the answer lies, and sometimes the answer itself. Uh, so that the answer is arrived at very quickly by the kids, uh, an answer to an extremely complex problem. And the answer is taken for granted. No one counts the answer as having much meaning, because it really is coming out of the mathematical, intuitive state of mathematics. Well, then their problem is to take the answer in their initial problem and build a logical bridge, a linear bridge back to it, which is the most elegant. And to hear young Eight, nine, and ten-year-old kids doing this is awesome, but the whole thing is based on essentially the same thing that, that the the savant is doing, except then incorporating it into a tightly logical system. But it's also what regular mathematicians are doing, isn't it? Because they have a kind of mathematical intuition. They, the really creative ones, often have these mathematical landscapes. They see a solution, and then they have to figure out how to prove it. How to prove it, and um, a lot of them have these very strong intuitions, and then they have to try and prove it, which is just what you're saying. They then have to find an elegant bridge to get there, um, and then they have to write it down in mathematical notation. Um, 
And then the rest of us who are not in that world see all these mathematical symbols and they're utterly opaque. So it's like not ever hearing music and just seeing music written on the page. But what's really going on in the minds of mathematicians is something quite different. And it sounds as if the savants and these people with circular maths and they're all related to this central process, which the most creative mathematicians have. But you know, in Roger Penrose's book, The Emperor's New Mind, where he rejects the case for artificial intelligence, um, mm-hmm. uh, saying that computers couldn't do this kind of creative process, because, first of all, they're based on the wrong principles, and secondly, if computers uh, ever can mimic human intelligence, then they wouldn't be digital classical, physical things, they'd be quantum computers, and quantum physics has quite different properties. Um, But he talks there about the difficulty, as a mathematician, of communicating a new idea. He said, you have it, you have this intuition. And he said, and then, he said, you can stand at a blackboard and sort of wave your hands around and make symbols, and then some people just get it. And he said, it's like an immediate transmission. It's not, it's a wonder to him, he said, that people can get it, that you can communicate these ideas. And he thinks it's more a matter of resonance, which is the way he puts it, rather than through any kind of linear process of logic or communicative symbols. These are helps. But basically what's doing is springing up in someone else's mind the, the form that's, as it were, transmitted by a resonance process. I, I myself think that may be the basis of a great deal of communication anyway. I mean, even in the animal kingdom. And I think when birds are singing and they hear another bird singing, um, the idea that all the information is being transferred by the actual sounds may not be what's going on at all. The the sounds may be like a tuning system, and if you tune insufficiently, then the whole resonant field may jump across. You may tune in, literally, in that case. But I think the, the very same thing is, is, is true in a lot of things that are going on right now. We think all relationship is kind of vertical across time space, and probably no relationship is that way. All relationships are, are kind of, um, I mean horizontal. All relationships are really vertical from, from the temporal spatial down into the, into the field effect, and then back. Rather like I used the example of I did this morning, I don't know that I did very well because I saw people falling asleep right now. But uh, I use the example of of the uh, work that that was published in 1983 from uh, the, the um, Ar- Ar- Paris Optic Institute, University of Paris. It was the Roger and the rest of them who did the the proof of Bell's theorem. And an aspect. Yeah, aspect and Roger and the rest. Um, that here are the particles that that can't be can't be communicating through time-space like this, because the, the distance is too great. And so the only way to ex- explain is if the, the, the relationship between the two is contained through the field effect giving rise to the paired particles. And this was a perfect example of, of your morphic resonance. And I, I was puzzled why you didn't use it, or at least I haven't found you using it, and why other people don't use it to defend what you're talking about. I certainly would. I think it's a perfect example of it. Well, I think non-locality in quantum physics, where widely separated systems have this apparently instantaneous connection, mm-hmm. could easily be another aspect of the same phenomenon. I mean, I would rather see them as different aspects of the same phenomenon rather than try and build morphic resonance on quantum theory. Well, I don't agree with that at all. I think quantum theory comes out of morphic resonance. Yes, I'd see yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I would well, too. Um, 
I had um, I had a very interesting correspondence with Bell himself. You know, Bell's theory. Mm -hmm. And um, Bell read my first book, A New Science of Life, and he also read The Presence of the Past, mm -hmm. and was really fascinated by morphic resonance, because he, like some other people working on quantum non-locality, um, were interested in the idea that it might have really big implications for the world, and it really might make a difference to the world as we live in it. Mm -hmm. Whereas at present, this utterly weird thing is sort of marginalized by physicists, or by most physicists. They think, here's this weird thing going on in the quantum domain, but as far as we know, it doesn't have any has no application aspects to the right. rest of the world. No. And meanwhile, they go on thinking about the physics of the brain in terms of classical physics and, and electrochemical mechanisms and so on. And people like Penrose are the ones who say, well, look, if the brain's going on a sort of quantum processes and non-locality are probably involved. The idea that quantum physics just somehow doesn't exist in the brain is preposterous. And yet, modern neurophysiology is largely based on ignoring it. So, there are a lot of people, like Penrose and Bell himself, who are groping towards finding ways where non-locality, as revealed in quantum theory, may be a very general and important theory, part of nature. Oh, so Bell thought morphic resonance could well be related, but he couldn't see exactly how, and neither can I. And so it's a kind of tantalizing possibility that it's not yet been possible to for produce the formal bridge, as it were, between the two phenomena. I, I tried to <laughs> talk about this to, uh, if, if I'm not saying this, Bob John in Princeton. You know Bob John's work. This yes. is a book he published, Margins of Reality. Mm -hmm. And we were, we shared the same platform at a conference at the University of California, Berkeley, once, when he was right in the middle of all of that. Now, Bob John is, was head of the Dean the School of Engineering uh, at Princeton and is now heading up some of the biggest programs that the government has, NASA and the whole raft of things. So he's a very competent physicist. And he had this 10-year research program going, which he called the Anomalies Project. And they were taking um, kind of problems that classical physics won't touch and the ordinary academic mind won't touch. And we're seeing what validity there was toward it. And it really turned him upside down. It stopped his world pretty thoroughly. They were able to take um, electronic machinery of all sorts, interferometers, throwing um, bands of light on the screen, and having they were bringing people in off the streets, demonstrating it to them, and the people would sit there and change the bands of light on the screen without touching the machinery at all. And when the bands of light would change on the screen, the machinery would change. And they were doing all sorts of double-blind studies. You know all those things they were doing with that. Uh, um, magnetometers inside sealed uh, Faraday cages and the individuals and they were linked, double blind linked to uh, other um, magnetometers. They, these gauge the lines, uh, magnetic lines uh, which were present and people were literally able to change the magne magnetic lines within the Faraday cage and the double blind um, controls on it would change correspondingly. And all of this, of course, is totally uh, impossible on any classical physics. But my favorite that they were doing was remote viewing. And this very briefly, 
they would have an individual sitting in a room concentrating uh, on the image that would appear, and they'd have someone else. It sounds very occultic, and it was. But they'd have another individual going out and looking at a certain target. And the target would be chosen only briefly ahead by, by computer selection and so on. They'd look at a certain target, and this individual was picking it up uh, with a very, very high degree of, of success. Then they began to find that most of the so-called failures were simply failures of, of interpretation. For instance, they had someone looking at the front facade of the New York Public Library. The individual in the, in the room picked up not the facade of the front side of the, of the library, but the back side. Uh, then, in other cases, the individual would be looking at the front side of a famous building. The individual would pick up an inside room in this, of that building and describe it quite accurately. One time, the individual was looking at a, some kind of a famous statue in a park or something, and this individual, over, the, the receiver, picks up not the, the, the monument that the individual is looking at, but a person sitting next to it on a park bench reading a book and tell you the book they're reading. See. Now, there are all sorts of problems. This, this both verifies this, but it introduces a whole new wrinkle. And that is, they have set up a closed system of inquiry, a closed system of, of trying to set up a cause and an effect. And the closed system itself breeds the whole process. What they're not aware of is, in my estimation, you could probably dispense with the so-called viewer who is sending altogether. By the time you have set up the entire experiment, the experiment itself is then a self-verifying process. Targ and, and uh, Russell Targ, and who's the other one in that? Trudeau. You remember the, the long distance? This was under government money. They were doing this too. And they were, they were doing long distance remote viewing from Russia to here. And they had this gal in Russia who was predicting four hours ahead of time things were going to happen. That the computer, the targets, the computer was going to select four hours later in San Francisco. And this immediately shoots down every theory that we have, like Charles Tart's theory of psi energy, PSI energy. It just won't work. There ain't no such animal in that, in that respect. Nor is there any, any sending of a signal. See, all that is shot down. If it can happen ahead of time, or if the individual can pick up an aspect of the, of the phenomena that's the target of the, of the operation, and yet not what the individual who's supposedly sending is looking at, then you introduce an element of it that can only be explained by your morphic resonance. So what's being sent is a totality or what's being set up as a totality from which this individual is liable to pick up any aspect of it at all. But he, because of the nature of setting up the experiment, you close the possibilities to that experiment. The individual sitting over here doesn't pick up something unrelated to the experiment, but always related to it. Well, I certainly think this way that we, through our intentions and the way we set up experiments, you can have these seemingly paranormal effects, is very interesting. And one of the things I'm working on at the moment is taking a look at regular science. Because, you see, scientists for years, skeptics, have taken the view that 
parapsychological experiments are subject to all these biases, experimental effects, um, expectancy biases, and so forth. But what they assume is that regular science is dealing with regular objective facts. <laughs> now, if you look into the psychological and medical literature, it's most psychologists and animal behavior people and medical people are well aware of this, and they do double-blind experiments because they accept that you can have this effect on your, your expectations can influence what happens. It's been proven so many times that it's part of first-year undergraduate textbook stuff in psychology and medicine, experimental expectancy effects. And you know Rosenthal's famous studies on rats. You give people one lot of rats labelled Harvard, no, Berkeley Bright Strain, Berkeley Dull Strain, <laughs> and tell them to run them in mazes. And they run them in mazes, and the bright rats do much better than the dull rats. But actually, they were just selected from a common laboratory pool and just labelled differently. And it's not just that people bias their observations, but the rats actually do do better. So the expectation is communicated somehow. And in medicine, placebo effects... Um, not only do people get better with placebos, but also placebos, blank pills, uh, can bring about the toxic side effects of the kind involved in the drug under trial. So this is so well documented, there's no dispute about it in psychology and medicine. It's supposed to be mediated by so-called subtle cues. But my question is just how subtle. And I've been in correspondence with Rosenthal and said, you know, has anyone ever tried looking for the experimental effects in biochemistry, genetics, cell biology, physics, chemistry? And his reply is no, because it's impossible that subtle cues could be mediated to non-inanimate systems or to things you know, other than people, higher animals, and, uh, and so on. You couldn't have a mechanism for this, because they assume it's just some subtle psychological mechanism. So I also wrote to Rosenthal and said, had he considered the possibility it might be parapsychological, the mediation of these experimental effects? And he wrote back saying that he had considered this possibility. He discussed it in a publication, saying that this would be quite easy to test, but he'd never done the experiment. So what I'm proposing in, in, um, in writing a new book on cheap experiments uh, that could change our view of the world, it's called Seven Experiments That Could Change the World, a do-it-yourself guide to revolutionary science. Most of the experiments could shatter existing paradigms, lead to a totally new view of reality, and most of them cost less than $10. So the, the point being that science is at the moment very restrained because of the professional institution, peer reviews, a kind of uh, almost Stalinist orthodoxy, which you can't stray beyond. But the fact is, if you can do experiments that are cheap enough, you can do what you like. And science in the past was mostly innovated. The innovation was mainly done by amateurs. So if you can get cheap experiments, anyone can do them. There's no longer any restriction. This experiment I'm proposing would be very cheap. It simply involves applying Rosenthal's protocol to regular science. Because if you look at biochemistry journals, cell biology journals, embryology journals, etc., no one ever does double-blind experiments. You know exactly what you're doing and which solution's being poured in there. Mm -hmm. So my proposal is that you do very simple, standard protocol from Rosenthal. You have an experiment in biochemistry where you give people something, activated enzyme, inhibited enzyme, and ask them to compare their activity using standard biochemical assays. 
And of course, it's the same thing, just labelled differently. Um, do you get experimental effects here? Then you get people having radioactive, very radioactive sample and quenched radioactive sample. Count them on a Geiger counter. Do they show different activities? You you do experiments with Drosophila fruit flies. You know, at one population with uh, activator gene and a suppressor gene. Do you get different ratios of, in the segregating populations when you breed them out? Um, I think you might easily. I think that regular science is probably the theatre of an enormous number of experimental uh, effects of a parapsychologically mediated kind. And I think paradigms are partly to do with collective expectation. And as you learn to be a scientist, you have to learn to be able to do the experiments. All science classes have practicals in them. And if you don't get the right results, in other words, the expected results, you flunk your practical exam. <laughs> you don't get to be a scientist. So there's a very strong selection procedure in <laughs> for people who can actually bring about the right results. Um, and having spent years at Harvard and in Cambridge demonstrating freshman and second-year practical classes, it's amazing. The, with simple, straightforward experiments that are meant to give straightforward, it's amazing the scatter of results you get. And you just have to tell people, you know, you've got the wrong result. You must have done something wrong. And this is what it's meant to be. And, and, and so they get constant feedback. And you know, by the end of the second or the third year as undergraduates, the ones who are majoring in science begin to get it right. And start getting the right kinds of results. This takes years. I mean, by the time you've got a PhD in science and you've got your union card to practice as a professional, you've had something like you know, two or three years at high school then three years or four years as an undergraduate, three years as a graduate student, you've had seven, eight, nine, ten years of being put through a system of doing the right experiments and getting the right results. So I think the possibility of a very large amount of so-called objective reality is produced in this way is quite striking. And I think Bob John has come up against you know, the fringes of this. And most scientists treat that as a totally fringe phenomenon and then try and attack his credentials, his methods, his <laughs> statistics, and so on. And it's very much a question of, um, I think, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, because, except they don't realize they're in a glass house. And anyway, this experiment that looks at experimental effects in regular science is quite simple, quite cheap to do, and I think could, it could be very revealing. I mean, it may, it may turn out that there are no effects of this kind. I'd be very surprised. But then the skeptics ought to be pleased because the, for the first time they'll have actual evidence that, that regular science is, is not just reflecting the experiment, experimenters' expectations. Everything we know about areas where this has been examined, psychology, medicine, animal behavior, suggests that these are quite big effects. So this raises the question of how much of reality do we construct, not just by the way we interpret it, by the way our expectations bring about what we expect. And in the interpersonal realm, we know that for sure, that if we approach somebody and we're convinced that they're a really horrible person and totally hostile, um, you know, the way we react will probably bring out those responses in them. Self-fulfilling prophecy is the stuff of everyday life. Um, it's also the stuff of science in many spheres of science. Um, and so I think it may be, you know, it may play a very major role in science as a whole. And this brings us to another point, which I rather wanted to ask you about. If we 
influence and construct reality and tune into fields and so on. How would you see this applying to the realm of prayer? <laughs> or, or if you just put it in a secular form, positive thinking. <laughs> you know, where, where people take the idea that you create your reality. And it's not just the way you see it, but somehow our minds are influencing what comes to pass. Well, the, the term, I, I know Fritjof Kapra used that term, and I don't, I don't believe him. Uh, he says, oh, we're, we are involved, we're creating this reality, and uh, it's up to us to create something different. Well, I think that's as much an error as the hardcore classical scientific idea. I, I do not believe, I, I know from all I've read and from all my own experience, I know that this is a cerebral universe. I think the people writing in the journals now, I've forgotten the a group I quoted at the head of my second or third chapter in my recent book, a group of neurologists who you state categorically any perception you have, locating an object in space or a sound in space or any tactile experience, whatever it is, your, your experience of any physical reality is the result of a peak of, popul uh, a peak of activity in a population of neurons. Okay. And this is known. I don't see any way in the world around that. I look at Edelman's, you know, Gerald Edelman's work. There's brilliant stuff. But you're dealing with, with populations of neurons and their activities, and the end result is your perception, our perception. And the extent to which we can enter into this and participate with it dynamically, we can pull our scientific stuff and so on. We can, we can participate in it. But this, this organization of, of um, the perception of a physical reality with its emotional subtle overtones and its final intellectual um, in intelligence realm and mental realm, that process occupies, according to everything I can find out and, and most authorities on it, about 95% of all of the energy of the brain-mind system, everything going on here. 95% of it is completely beneath our awareness. We have no real access to it at all. We're the recipients of it. I mean, an ego structure. Uh, the individual ego structure represents about 5% of the total energy of the whole system. It's the end product that uh, off which the whole thing is balanced. Uh, and we as a 5% ego then assume, because we're a result of all this, that we make the assumption that we're creating all this. Well, it's all created within our head, uh, the result of billions of years of, of evolutionary uh, process, but the idea that we then are creating a reality is simply not true. The, the reality is being created by a fantastic creative process, infinitely beyond our, our concept. Uh, we're the recipients of it, and our job is to learn to participate with it and, and go along with it, uh, but to ever assume that we're doing it is a profound error. Uh, and so, so you think we are, you see, I think that the, there's, there's a whole set of habits that are at work, most of which I think of as unconscious, um, which are operating you know, in, in our, through our brains, these patterns mm -hmm. of activity. Um, obviously, our conscious mind is only a small part of what's there. But I'm not sure how much the perception, how much the brain activity comes first. You get brain activity associated with perceptions, but... 
the perception and the brain activity. You see, take the classic Hindu example. You look in the gathering darkness, you come across a piece of old rope, and you think mm-hmm. it's a snake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this kind of, everyone's had this sort of experience. Now, if you think it's a snake, you start back, adrenaline's pumping through your body. All the physiological responses you could measure would be characteristic of perceiving a snake. Yet, if you saw it as a bit of old rope, you had different physiological responses. Mm-hmm. So, um, I would say that the mental perception and the physiological and the chemical changes all go together. And it wouldn't be that you have first a brain mechanism doing something and then a perception overlaid on top of it. I'd see okay. the whole thing as yeah. part of a, a field. They're two different fields of activity which involve a subjective side, an emotional side, a hormonal side, and a neural side mm-hmm. all together. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's true. I, I have, to, have to go along with that. I'm just saying we first of all have to, have to realize that we're largely recipients of a fantastic creative process. We have to accept that before we're going to talk about um, coming into control over it or predicting and controlling the whole process in any way. Uh, and, of course, the, you have your problem of delusion. I, I think of uh, the delusion that the snake is, uh, the rope is a snake. I remember our mutual friend, uh, um, Bone, David Bone, talking about we have illusion, we have delusion, uh, and we have the, the, the dreadful situation that happens when we all get together and and have mutual, um, what, what, what do you call it, uh, collusion, which verifies our delusions about our initial illusions, you see. And then we begin to live those out. I, I realize all that. Uh, but uh, I think when you, when you start talking about prayer, uh, I think we're, we're talking about beginning to resonate, if you like, with, with uh, sort of the intelligence behind the intelligence and the creative process. And uh, to, to my, the way I look at it, the, these frontal lobes, I've been fascinated with the frontal lobes recently. I didn't know until about two years ago that, that they were the last added by evolutionary history and that they are the last developing in the developmental scheme. The brain is still laying down the tracks for this whole portion of, of, of the system uh, throughout childhood and adolescence, and not until uh, late adolescence, somewhere around 20 or 21, is the structure even complete. And all the literature for the past 50 years has said everything is complete by age 15, myelinated, locked into place for, for good. And here's the major portion of the brain, which they've always referred to as the silent areas of the brain, because they can't find anything happening there, seem to be wasted, uh, are, don't, aren't even available to any kind of, of developmental age 15. After all the other structural parts of the brain are fully functional and myelinated, and operating, and these are the parts of the brain that give us, in effect, our, our moral perception according to our models, always according to our models, which is what you're talking about, the whole enculturation process, which determines the kind of reality we experience. We have no control over that at all. I have no control over my mama and papa and what they thought and how they, they form my mind. But my world reflects it. Uh, but there again, we have no choice in a totally open-ended system as we as we have, except to close it in some form. If we're not closed, we would have no no reality of instability. We'd be in chaos. 
And that closure is what we call enculturation. Enculturation locks us into a fixed system, which is always, it seems to me, negative. I, I, I think Gazanig, I believe, who said we have, we have no we have no development at all without our environmental stimulus and the environmental stimulus, which means family, school, society, and so on, is always negative and always inhibits us and constricts us. But uh, nevertheless, we have this other aspect of the brain now, which we have to start and look at, which is the, the frontal lobes, which don't even aren't even completed until somewhere four to five years after all the rest of the system is is. Uh, complete and should be functional and furnishing us, in effect, both our sense of ego individuality and our environment, which is your question, what what the the possibilities of prayer and all are, are probably some of the methods for for activating meditation, contemplation, uh, what all the great mystics have always claimed, are ways of starting to activate this latest evolutionary process, which in the majority of people probably are never activated at all. I see. Well, why do you think it's located in the frontal lobes, or indeed anywhere in particular? But I still think it's a cerebral universe. Uh, That is, whatever is happening uh, must be interpreted by some kind of neural process, or combination of processes within the brain system. certainly goes beyond the neurons. Uh, and uh, the topology of the brain, I think Edelman is right. There's a, a very strong topo- topological aspect of the brain. I, I was saying this morning, Luria used to think that you could not locate anything within one specific area of the brain because the whole thing was operating in such an integral unit. But now they're finding a very high degree of, 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 of location of particular effects within the brain. And... Uh, as you know, certain damage to certain areas of the brain simply eliminate big chunks of our reality out there. You can uh, lose whole chunks of your, your vocabulary by removing a couple of areas of the tiny areas of the brain. And the same thing with the visual fields and so forth. So you do have this topological aspect. And the, the development of the child's intelligence from the beginning follows the same hierarchy of evolutionary development of the brain to begin with. So this is, again, topological. And uh, here you get to a certain point in which, for the majority of people, the curtain closes. No more development takes place. And yet here are these silent areas of the, of the neocortex, which are not developed, they're not utilized, uh, and we're not given models for it, we're not given a nurturing environment which encourages the, the development of it. And so they remain simply in their dormant state, uh, leaving us, in effect, locked into identification with very low and rather primitive animal structures of the brain. I think McLean was quite right when he refers to the two animal structures of the brain. And we remain, in effect, in that in that position. We can use a lot of the intellect of the, of the neocortex, the other parts of it, the, other than the frontal lobe, to manipulate and, um, and do tricks with that which is given by the two primary brain systems, our whole scientific world and all the rest of that comes out of that, but that does nothing whatsoever to lift us out of our identification with a purely physical system, with its purely physical limitations. And I think that's what the frontal lobe is about. And that's where you get into what we interpret as the spiritual realm. 
But it still would be perfectly biological. It would be as biological as anything else because it requires its corresponding brain structure for its interpretation into our life and for our participation with it to employ it. So what happens to people with lesions of the frontal lobes? Well, what happens to people when they when they do a frontal lobotomy, for God's sake? Yes. <laughs> well, well, that's a good question. So I, has, has this been done? I mean, are there studies on this? I don't know. I haven't heard of any. No. Do you think that people um, who are considered mystics or extremely spiritual or have psychic powers, or maybe even individuals in history like Christ can have had, this is something that maybe was just very highly developed? There are two or three things in that that I would, I would have to respond to. First of all, I would, I would never equate psychic with spiritual, not myself. Um, to me, they're, they're totally different phenomena. Uh, the other thing is this is a recent evolutionary achievement in this business of the frontal lobes and the business of achieving a state of awareness which is freed from all the lower evolutionary processes. And again, if you really, if you look into the structure of the brain and the triune structure of it, the, what McLean calls the reptilian and the old mammalian or limbic and then the neocortex and the way it unfolds in children and the one-for-one -one correspondence between McLean's work and the developmental psychologist's work, then you'll see that evolution has literally been moving toward a form of awareness which can be freed from all the forms of awareness necessary to get to that state. And uh, that's what we're all expecting. And that, in fact, the, the expectation for that new form of, of, of awareness begins to arise very sharply in us around 14 or 15. That's when that feeling that something tremendous is supposed to happen begins to manifest in us. And our society tells us all these things, if we just had them, this would be taken care of. And uh, it, it isn't. So I think in evolutionary history, great people have broken through into this realm. It's just like a few scattered examples. And uh, then they, they try to act as like the target cell in the brain when it organizes. They try to act as target cells to attract other people to the same phenomena. But to my other thing, not enough of this has taken part to establish, establish it as a strong enough morphic field that it can be uh, uh, interacted with by the populace at large. So it remains a rather, rather isolated and esoteric kind of procedure. And then we build up all sorts of religions around it, and that really kills it off. You see? We, we talked a little bit this morning about the heart having the ability to communicate and manifest in have that interaction between the mind-brain and the heart, wouldn't the heart also have a morphogenic field? That the heart could have a way of communicating that would be different than the brain-mind? I wasn't there when you were talking about your interpretation of the heart. Maybe you <laughs> well, it wasn't my interpretation of the heart. Of the heart. I, was just, I started off only with, the, with some... Um, uh, Hardcore research has been done on it, and, and we had a cardiologist there for a while who uh, who um, fed into this very nicely. But it's the fact that the heart plays a profound role in the operation of the brain system. Uh, the ANF, a, a hormone produced in the intermarry of the heart, uh, controls virtually every aspect of the whole emotional cognitive system. It runs the whole hormonal 
uh, process to the body. And that is the pituitary and all of these hormonal processes take their signals from the heart. The heart controls all this. Now, this is known. They're no longer arguing about this. Uh, in fact, actions in the heart precede all actions in the body and in the brain. And the ANF, by the way, controls every major organ of the heart, um, of the body as well. No, it's Adrian Neuro. Where is that doctor? He'll give you. The he's, not, he's not in either one of these words. ANF. It's the atrioneurotic factor. The atrioneurotic factor. I, I think I've got it right. Yes, say it again. That's what. No, it's, it's atrioneurotic factor. At any rate, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a peptide, uh, one of the hormones, but it operates from the heart and profoundly controls the operations of the brain structure itself. At the same time, the heart is being informed of the general reality situation that we're in by the brain structure. Uh, there are all sorts of direct, unmediated neural connections between the heart and the brain, uh, in which the heart is, is a controlling brain function. So you have this dynamic between the heart and the brain. Uh, the heart also takes on characteristics of the, in, of the individual personality being developed within the brain. And the heart begins to reflect those because of the dynamic exchange between the two. And so when you have cardiac, one of the interesting phenomena they found in cardiac transplant is that the donor, I mean the, the recipient of the transplant, um, is, uh, it takes on characteristics personality characteristics of the donor. And we might expect that with a brain transplant, but it comes as a surprise from the heart transplant. Mm. And yet it's one of the common effects of a heart transplant. So uh, that, uh, that I was getting into that simply as the, the basic heart-mind interaction in which some form of intelligence in the heart is directing the intelligence of the, of the, of the brain system the way it functions. But it, it doesn't do this through language or sending up sweet misses of love and, or anything like that, but simply changing brain function. But also, the my point in, in this and bringing it up with my group was, if we look at the way intelligence unfolds from birth on, in fact, it starts, of course, in, in utero, and goes through these specific changes, you will find that the intelligence of the heart is designed by nature to undergo constant and continual evolutionary development as well. But that depends on the development of the brain system itself, and again, depends on nurturing environments and appropriate models for that stimulus that will bring that about. And so so uh, most of us operate at a very low level, just a, just a hormonal, uh, uh, chemical molecular uh, dynamic between the heart and the brain, whereas much higher forms of intelligence and interaction can, can exist. And the adolescent who begins to feel this great anguish of a heart and this great longing and this great uh, feeling of, of expectancy that something tremendous is supposed to happen begins to feel that precisely when the great frontal lobes are nearing maturation. And what will activate the, the frontal lobes into their, a totally different form of experience than we ordinarily have is an open heart, if you like, or an enlightened heart, which uh, all these are la-di-da terms, and I don't like them. But uh, this is what the whole meditative process is about, and it's what the whole contemplative process of the West is about. Uh, they all speak of the heart 
and uh, learning to take your cues from the heart and all, but they don't realize that the heart has, the heart is in effect, if there is an intelligence, the heart is totally helpless without an instrument for expression, and that happens to be the brain system. And so the, the frontal lobes are, would be, would, were they developed, be simply the instrumentation for moving us into a modality that is beyond the basic survival mechanisms of the lower brain structure. If, if you read Paul McLean, now years ago, and he's, he's a great brain research person, he was head of the Department of Brain Evolution and Behavior for, what, 30, 40 years, and they did synthesis of all the brain research going on all over the world, as well as doing their own research. But he, years ago, was looking at the frontal lobes, and he said, what could they be for? And he had the courage to go out on a limb and talk about meaning, which in, in the scientific world is just, as you know, it's just not done. It's politically incorrect. But he said, what are they about? He made the proposal two things, that the frontal lobes would be probably whatever intelligence they held within them would be appropriate for development at adolescence, beginning somewhere around 15. That has since been borne out, I can guarantee you. And the other thing that they seem to have to do with all the higher virtues, as our, our uh, religions have always talked about, love, empathy, sympathy, compassion, uh, care, nurturing, and so on. And then he uh, draws a strong correlation between the singular gyrus area of the limbic system and the frontal lobes. So all that's been mapped out, and, and it fits in now with everything that's coming out in research about the frontal lobes. So they would, they would represent a totally, a totally different form of, of life pattern, I mean, a, or a different way of looking, a different way of perceiving, which we call the unified state or the state of unity, where we're not split one off from another, but when, which we feel this, this totality of the experience. Hmm. Well, of course, in many traditions, uh, the heart's always a center, isn't it? I mean, the Christian, the prayer of the heart tradition, the, the Tibetan idea in heart chakras and so on. And I've always understood these to involve not just the physical heart, of course, but also the fields to which the heart is attuned. Now, there you have it. That's uh, the whole thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, these physiological interactions you're talking about between the heart and the brain would be part of the picture, but there's also the larger picture which comes from the... Oh, oh, oh Prebram, Prebram understood that. He talked about the parallel processes in the brain. Here's a, we've got all these cells and all these things we can engage with their instruments. He said, but what about the parallel processes that don't lend themselves directly to that kind of instrumentation? And there he's talking about your fields, exactly. And that's what I'm talking about, the higher levels of intelligence in the brain. We've got these hormonal actions, fine. Uh, uh, the scientific people will accept that. But when you start talking about the parallel processes that are not uh, of, of the um, direct kind of uh, quantum mechanical physical interactions and so on, they back off. And of course, the whole purpose is to get to the, to the other realms that the heart is operating out. The, the Easterners speak of, of the old thumper here as slightly to the left side, but the true heart over here, right beyond the thumper, over here in the very center, is the true heart, you see, the heart of all things, which is, in effect, the subtle aspect of the physical heart. And there you're, is, is what you're talking about. So I think that's the whole key, and that's what all of us are after, and that's the answer to everything. 
to my way of thinking, all of our, all of our problems are caused by, by blocking these, these higher biological processes. It's all still biology. You can't separate them, to my way of thinking. And, uh, we, we block those and we lock our kids literally into an identification with the lower animal structures because that, they're then predictable and controllable and they're good economic commodities. And, and what we're after is, is to break out of those lower evolutionary processes into the highs. And that is done through the heart. I think. Well, it relates quite well to the extended mind. The only problem is that we're supposed to be ending at minus one minute again. <laughs> so it's a whole other topic. Maybe I should just say very briefly this is what, one of the things I'm working on is... The frontal lobes. Oh, the frontal lobes. I haven't thought in particular about the frontal lobes. Um, and what I've been interested in lately is the idea that the brain is only part of the, our, our mental fields work and inf- through and influence the brain. Um, but um, our minds are far more extensive than our brains. So that... Um, in ordinary perception, when I look around this room, that my mental activity, the, everything I see is an image in my mind, but it's not, I don't think, inside my brain. I think the images are right where they seem to be. Mm-hmm. In other words, all around us, we're projecting out a whole mental world. Mm-hmm. And this is an empirically testable proposition, um, and some empirical tests that... Um, are going on now are concerned the very well-known phenomenon of the sense of being stared at. If you affect what you're looking at, if there's something going out as well as coming in, then say you stare at someone from behind, if there's a mental influence reaching out to whatever you're looking at, as well as light rays coming in, you might be able to affect the person you're staring at. They might know they're being stared at. Mm -hmm. And this actually is, of course, a very well-known phenomenon. And empirically, it's possible to show that this really happens. It's not only that 90% of the population think it happens because they've experienced it, but you can actually, I think, prove it. This is one of the chief experiments, these staring experiments. <laughs> we done for virtually nothing. <laughs> the simple protocol I've invo- developed involves people working in pairs. And you toss a coin for the randomization procedure. You either stare or don't stare, according to the mm-hmm. randomized trials. Apart from pencil and paper to write the results down, all you need is a coin to toss, which can be one cent, and that's recyclable. So this is <laughs> virtually free. Um, um, but the consequences are absolutely profound, mm-hmm. see, because it, it's, I think these fields, of course, influence our brains, work through them, but we're surrounded by these extended mental fields, and the perceptual fields flow into our perceptual world all around us. And I suppose anything that involves the heart would involve fields of activity stretching out from our hearts as well as being located just inside the physical heart. So a lot of common usage of language to do with people who are big-hearted or take on rather more literal meanings than than we would usually assume. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. 
As I was uh, listening to this talk with you just now, well, <laughs> it dawned on me that it was only a few days ago out on the forums when Zeitwell and I were talking about the fact that psychedelics sometimes bring out the woo-woo factor in people and that I've always tried to keep the woo-woo to a minimum here in the salon. Well, what made me smile to myself just now is that the conversation we just listened to was, uh, well, is beginning to enter into woo-woo land just a little bit. But, uh, hey, these two guys weren't approaching their ideas from a psychedelic perspective necessarily, but were just two public intellectuals riffing on some of their favorite ideas. But, uh, for what it's worth, I really don't think that what we just listened to could be called woo-woo. For me, it's more like wow-wow. <laughs> of course, uh, I love thinking about these things, and my guess is that you do too. Otherwise, you uh, wouldn't still be listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> Anyhow, in the interest of not letting my own interpretation of these ideas uh, get in the way of your own thinking, I'm going to leave you to your own devices and uh, get out of here for today uh, after leaving you with just two more thoughts. The first one is to let you know about a podcast series that I think should not be missed. I learned about it just yesterday when my good friend Wild Bill Radzinski called to let me know that he'd just been interviewed for the Very Ape podcast. Bill, as you know, is uh, one of my longtime friends, and if you want to hear more about our times together in Palenque, Mexico, well, you can go back to uh, my podcast number 307, in which Matt Palomary interviewed Bill, and uh, they talked about some of those wild days that we all had together. And if you go to the program notes for that podcast, you'll see an interesting photo of Bill and me, and uh, <laughs> it's nothing like what you would expect. Well, since our Palenque days, uh, Bill and I have had many more adventures together, uh, well, actually more than I'd like to count. And uh, I should add that Bill is also one of the all-time top five supporters of these podcasts. And uh, for that, too, I will remain eternally grateful. Anyway, the Very Ape Podcasters, <laughs> I kind of like that, the Very Ape Podcasters, interviewed Bill, and uh, they just now posted it on their SoundCloud page. It's their episode 39, and it's titled Acid Heads with Bill Radzinski. And uh, as soon as I post this podcast today, I'm going to uh, listen to it myself to hear some more of Bill's latest thoughts. Now, when he called me to tell me about the Very Ape podcast, he went out of his way to encourage me to listen to their podcast number 21, which is titled Cops for Pot with Howard Cowboy Woolridge. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while... You already know that a few years ago, Bill retired as a law enforcement officer in the city of New York. And so whenever it comes to questions that I might have about law enforcement, Bill is my go-to guy. So when he told me that the very ape interview with Howard Woolridge was not to be missed, well, I took his advice, and this morning while I was at the gym, I listened to it, and, well, I was really impressed. Woolridge is uh, one of the co-founders of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition and is now working for you and me as a lobbyist in Washington. I could actually go on and on about <laughs> the new information that I learned in this interview, but I'm going to leave you to that for yourself. However, uh, if you are involved in any kind of group that discusses the war on drugs, this is one podcast that uh, you most definitely will want to play for your group. And uh, I'll put links to both of those podcasts in today's program notes. Now, uh, as you know, I also publish a Flipboard magazine, which is titled Psychedelic Salon. And if you don't use the Flipboard app on your phone or tablet, you can still read it online. 
So uh, just go to our psychedelicsalon.com site and uh, click on the link titled Saloners. And there you'll find several links to things that I think may interest you. And one of them is the Salons magazine. Now, the only reason that I'm mentioning it to you right now is so that you can read a story titled A Neuroscientist Explains Why Donald Trump Needs LSD. (laughs) And uh, that has as its premise that the president's biggest enemy is his ego. And uh, it then goes on to speculate about what could happen if he could temporarily dismantle this monster ego. Well, the biggest problem with that plan, as I see it, is that there probably isn't a psychonaut anywhere that's brave enough to drop acid with Trump. (laughs) But uh, that also got me to thinking that, well, it could be kind of a funny thing if it went well. Which, of course, led my twisted sense of humor to remember that wonderful little video on YouTube of the experiment in the UK where some of their elite Marines were given LSD just to see how it affected their performance. And uh, if you haven't already seen it, then, well, you may want to treat yourself to a good laugh, so go check it out. I guess that uh, the only reason I'm even taking the time to mention it here is that, well, at times like these, we need to get in all of the laughs that we can. And so, as you watch that video of the Marines on acid, try to picture Trump in the middle of them giving his orders. (laughs) As I said, uh, we have to grasp at straws these days, but... I think that you'll find that a little humor each day is just what the doctor ordered. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.